Father, we're so thankful that you've given us the opportunity and yet the privilege to come before the throne of grace and to ask you for the needs that we perceive. First of all, Lord, to humble ourselves and to acknowledge that you are our sovereign, our king, our Lord, and that we are totally dependent upon you because every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And to you, Lord, we give praise and honor. And we ask that you might be with each of the classes this morning. Guide us in our understanding of the Word of God. And pray that we will hear what you are saying to us. And Lord, in the service that is going on at this time too, that you will bless every aspect and empower the Word there. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 49, we've been studying the deathbed prophecies of Jacob concerning his 12 sons. And so far, we have looked at the prophecy concerning six of the 12. Today, we will look at four more. I'd like for us to begin reading with verse 16 of Genesis 49. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path, that bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backward. For thy salvation I wait, O Lord. A lot of these passages, as you read them, they can, can seem quite uh, mysterious. And it just sounds like poetry that, you know, doesn't really relate to anything that we can relate to. But as you study scripture, uh, the Old Testament uh, historical books and the events which transpired in the lives of those that were the descendants of these tribes, we begin to, to get a picture of what Jacob was referring to or what the Lord was saying through Jacob. I'm not sure Jacob himself really understood everything that he was saying. But this is a really interesting passage concerning Dan. Uh, Jacob is, in this particular passage, incorporating the meaning of his son's name in the prophecy. Rachel had given to this young man the name Dan, which meant he judged or he vindicated, referring, of course, to God. She meant that God had looked down, seen her childlessness, and as a result, he had vindicated her childlessness by giving her a son by her handmaid, Bilhah. Now, whether or not she perceived God really there, uh, whether or not God was vindicating her by giving her a child by another woman, you know, a, a, a fourth wife to her husband Jacob is, is, a, is a question, or a third wife actually, that we might want to um, doubt at some point. But nevertheless, this was her perception. Now, Dan would become, down through history, a very warlike tribe. And there are several passages in Scripture which talk about the warriors of Dan going forth. But they would never be a dominant tribe. In fact, the tribe of Dan, when it came to the conquest and the giving out of the various portions of uh, the land to the tribes, Dan was given the very smallest portion, right up against the, the Philistian uh, plain. And that was to be the land grant for Dan. But the passage here tells us that Dan should judge Israel. 
And that judgment seems to be fulfilled primarily in the person of Samson. I would like for us just to turn to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the last two verses in the chapter, verse 24. Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanath Dan, between Zorah and Eshtel. Most of us are familiar with the story of Samson. He was strong. He was courageous. He was foolish. But he was a man of cunning. He was as wily as a serpent, if you will, in many of his dealings with the Philistines. Numerous times he deceived them. And as the product of his deception, he slew hundreds of Philistines. However, we might look upon him. We have to acknowledge one thing. As you go through the story of the judges and you read about the various judges, you'll discover many of the judges are referred to in one or two verses. So-and-so was judge over the land. He judged for 40 years and he defeated the Amalekites. Amen. Or you might have in a few cases where a whole chapter is given to a judge like Gideon. But in the case of Samson, four chapters of the book of Judges are committed to this judge, Samson. So obviously, he was an important judge from the tribe of Dan. Samson was a foolish man in many ways, and he paid a high price for his folly. As you know, dying a laughing stock, as you will, of the Philistines, although, of course, he had the last laugh, so to speak. But regardless of his folly, God used him. God used him as a horned snake in the path of the Philistines, if you will. So verse 17 of this passage in Genesis 49 could be fulfilled primarily in the person of Samson. But there are other ways in which we may find a fuller understanding because so often in Scripture where you discover a prophecy, that prophecy is often not fulfilled by a single event, but by multiple events. And often it's fulfilled with a near fulfillment and a distant fulfillment. Many of the prophecies in Isaiah and Ezekiel and others refer to events maybe a few years or a hundred years, or in the case of Isaiah at the time of Messiah, and then also to the end of time. As Isaiah spoke of the fact, for example, that Sennacherib would not uh, have victory, and he spoke of just days ahead in his prophecy. And then he spoke, of course, of Messiah, and then, of course, he also 
seems to speak of the millennial kingdom. And so this, this is often true as you look at prophecy. So first of all here, I think it's possible that the uh, prophecy here concerning this may, be, may have been fulfilled partly in the location of Dan. Now Dan at first was located down, as I said, about the middle of the country over towards the sea, adjacent to the plain of the Philistines. But at one point in their history, a segment of the tribe of Dan moved bodily to the north. And he moved to the north of the Sea of Galilee and settled down up in the region which is one of the source areas for the Jordan River. In fact, up there today, if you were to visit the land of Israel, you could go to Tel Dan. And Tel Dan is a beautiful place. Even though it's, it's just a ruin of a city, it's located in, in basically a park. And, and there the, the waters of the Jordan literally spring out of the ground and flow down into the Sea of Galilee. It's really one of the most beautiful places in all of the land of Israel today. And as they settled up there to the north, they were astride the main route into the land of Israel. And so what they became was sort of the front line of defense. They became, if you will, the marcher lords up there to the north, defending the northern border against those who would attack. So it could be that this is referring to their tenacious defense of the north against enemies, even causing would-be attackers to turn around when they discovered the ferocity of the defenders. Less glorious, though, and probably more specifically referred to in the Genesis passage is the fact that Dan may have been a serpent against himself, a serpent to his own harm, as well as that of all Israel. A couple of passages I'd like to look at along this line. First one is in Judges chapter 18. This is at a time when a portion of the tribe of Dan is on the move. And on their, in their movement, they come across an Ephraimite who's established his own little kind of temple and has manufactured his own god and has his own priest and has his own little private religion, if you will. And the Danites come across this and they decide to adopt this religion for themselves. And so they steal the gods and steal the priest and, and go on their way. And then in verse uh, 30, And the sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. During the time of the judges, the tabernacle had been set up at Shiloh. And we noted that, what, a couple weeks ago. And all that time, the Danites, at least those who moved to the north, were not worshiping at Shiloh. But they were worshiping their own graven image with their own little priesthood here. Uh, a manufactured god by an Ephraimite by the name of Micah. So what you have here is idolatry being introduced into the land and sustained by the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity. It's a long time. A long time for them to tenaciously stick to a pagan deity and, and to worship. And that becomes a snake in the land, if you will. This further is illustrated in the passage in 1 Kings chapter 12. 
If you remember, when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam was supposed to inherit the throne of all Israel, but Rehoboam foolishly followed the advice of the young men he'd grown up with rather than listening to the wise counselors of Solomon. And he basically told Israel that if you make me king, I'm going, I'm going to whip you with scorpions. Uh, you're, going to, you're going to obey me. And as a result, there was rebellion in the ranks and uh, Jeroboam became the leader of ten of the tribes and Rehoboam was left only with two, basically Benjamin and Judah. And so in 1 Kings chapter 12, we discover that the king, this is Jeroboam, <clears throat> verse, chapter 12, verse 28. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, It is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and he put the other in Dan. He didn't want the people of Israel going to Jerusalem to worship. Because if they went to Jerusalem to worship, they might think, whoa, we've blown it here. We're not any longer under God's chosen rule. We're not under the descendant of David. And, and we're separated from this glorious uh, temple that Solomon built. And here are, we're, we are you know, living in this divided condition. And so in order to prevent that, Jeroboam created uh, two gods, two golden calves, after the w image, of course, of the one, the memory of the image of one that was created by Aaron in the wilderness, and which they at that time claimed was the god they had followed out of uh, Egypt. And so he's re-resurrecting this old idea, and he builds two of these calves, one at each end of the country, so people didn't have to go too far. You know, the ones in the, the southern end could go to Bethel, and the ones in the northern end could go up to Dan, and uh, thus the land was bracketed with these idolatrous images. And so Dan became a center for calf worship. And this was sustained throughout the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. So like an unseen serpent, a venomous sand-colored horned snake that's not seen until the horse is upon him. Then the horse, frightened, rises up and throws his rider. So was this insidious sin of idolatry which crept in and it really did topple the great Davidic empire. Idolatry brought an end to the great kingdom of David upon the death of Solomon. Solomon, of course, himself was largely responsible because of the idolatry that he allowed in through the many wives that he married. The fears engendered by this prophecy, and I, I think that this was not a, an exciting prophecy for Jacob to make, and I think that is illustrated by the way he ends it. He says in verse 17, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heel so the rider falls backwards for thy salvation. I wait, O Lord. <laughs> I mean, this last verse is in contrast to the verse before it. It's not like he's saying, yes, O Lord, Dan is the way and, and your salvation. No, no, it's, it's in stark contrast to what he has said about the tribe of Dan. I think the fears engendered by this prophecy of this, this serpent nature creeping into Israel, that he cries out in prayer, for thy salvation I wait, O Lord. And what's interesting is that this is the very first time that you'll find the word salvation in the book of Genesis. It is the Hebrew word Yeshua, which will very soon appear in the name of the leader of Israel, Joshua, and which in Greek is 
Jesus. Interesting, I think, is it not? The thoughts of the serpent, I think, however vague they may have been in the mind of Jacob, elicited this prayer of salvation for his descendants. The Jewish Targums, which are a paraphrase in Aramaic of the Jewish scripture, interpret this prayer as messianic. The Jews interpret this prayer as messianic. And so I think what you have here is Jacob saying, For thy Yeshua, Messiah, I wait, O Lord. Kind of interesting when you think about that. Where in the world would he get this? It had to be the inspiration of the Spirit of God for him to put this in there and to contrast it with the, the serpent image that came through Dan and the idolatry that would spring up in that tribe. Genesis 49:19. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he shall raid at their heels. Gad doesn't get much, does he? Two short lines. We have here again a play on the name. Gad can mean fortune. And it can mean a marauding band, or as some translated, a troop. It seems that when Leah's maid Zilpah gave birth to this young man, that Leah is the one who came up with the name Fortune. I'm going to name him Fortune because this is my good fortune to be able to present my husband with another son. You see, both Rachel and Leah considered the sons born through their handmaids to be their sons. And legally in those days, that was the way it was. And so she was in effect saying, how fortunate I am to be able to give my husband another son because she so desperately wanted her husband to love her. And she felt the more sons she gave him, the more he might love her. It was kind of a forlorn hope, but it was nevertheless her hope. But Jacob here is obviously not using the word fortune as he is speaking concerning his son. He is using the other meaning of the term, the, the meaning of a marauding band, of a troop of warriors. So he prophesies here that raiders will invade the territory of Gad, first of all. Now, Gad, of course, along with the other tribes of Israel, participated in the conquest under Joshua. And they conquered the land, and then they inhabited the land, and it was kind of a turnkey country. <laughs> they captured it, and the orchards were planted, and the vineyards were planted, and the fields were planted, and, and houses were already built, and, and they just basically took over. It was not a, uh, you know, it wasn't like some of the Germanic invasions when they occurred into the Roman Empire, or when the uh, Anglo-Saxons invaded Celtic England or something, or Roman England. They, they didn't come through and pillage and burn and destroy. They came in and took it all over because it was their land. Just get rid of the people, that's all. And, and everything that's already here, that's ours. And, and so they, they took it. And uh, Reuben, Gad, and one half tribe of the tribe of Manasseh asked permission of Moses to settle on the eastern side of the Jordan River in what would be known earlier this century as Transjordan. They wanted to, have to, to settle what is known geo, well, physiographically as the Dome of Gilead. 
Gilead was the land directly across from Canaan on the east side of the Jordan River. You go into the Jordan Valley, which is below sea level. Many people don't realize that the entire Jordan Valley is below sea level. And that as you rise up out of the Jordan Valley, you rise up the cliffs, the escarpment up to what's called the Dome of Gilead. And it gets three, 4,000 feet up there uh, above sea level. And uh, up in that area, these tribes would live all the way between the Yarmuk, which is a major river which comes out of the east, just south of the Sea of Galilee, clear down to the northern end of the Dead Sea. That whole region over there, which is in Jordan today, the country of Jordan, uh, was to be given to them. And Moses told him, yes, you may inhabit it, but you must send your warriors with the rest of Israel to conquer the land. You can't cop out here and say, well, we've conquered this area. That's good enough for us. You guys go take the rest. No, you had, they had to go. They promised to do that. And so they were allowed to settle on the east side of the Jordan River. So, as such, Gad became, along with Reuben and, and half the tribe of Manasseh, a buffer between Israel and the marauding bands of the Syrian desert. Most of us, I think, know enough about Near Eastern history to realize that out of the deserts, whether it be the Syrian desert or the Arabian desert or, or the Sinai itself, there often came into the settled areas bands of nomads, people who lived raising animals out in the desert, but most of those people got bored with their lifestyle out there. And, you know, after a while, you know, it's kind of boring to eat the same old stuff. So you raid into a, a settled area and you take all the goodies and get a few more slaves that you can sell in commerce. And so this was a very common activity for the Bedouins of that part of the world in those days and in far more recent times too. And so what we see here is they serve as a buffer. First line of defense now to the east. Dan would be first, first line of defense to the north. Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh would be first line of defense over towards the east. And so as these bands would come in, they would be intercepted by the Gadites. And the scripture is saying here, according to this prophecy, that Gad would raid at their heels. The meaning would, of that being that they would put them to flight and chase them back out into the desert at their heels, driving them before them. So as in the role of defender of the eastern frontier, Moses compares Gad to a lion. I'll just turn to the verse in uh, Deuteronomy 33, verse 20, where Moses is, is sort of doing similarly to what uh, Jacob did here. And he says, and of Gad, he said, blessed is the one who enlarges Gad. He lies down as a lion and tears the arm and also the crown of the head. So Gad would be like a, a lion on the frontier. Now, if you turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 5, you discover that the Gadites were truly a warrior people. The chronicler tells us in 1 Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 18 that the sons of Reuben and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh consisted of valiant men who bore shield and sword and shot with a bow and were skillful in battle. And then in chapter 12, of First Chronicles in verse 8. And from the Gadites there came over to David in the stronghold in the wilderness mighty men of valor, men trained for war, who could handle shield and spear and whose faces were like the faces of lions and they were as swift as the gazelles 
on the mountains. And verse 14, these are the sons of Gad, were captains of the army. He who was least was equal to a hundred, and the greatest to a thousand. How would you like to be as the least equal to a hundred of the enemy, as the greatest equal to a thousand of the enemy? Well, you know, it's obviously a measure of poetic hyperbole, but nevertheless, it speaks of the greatness of the tribe of Gad as a warrior people. So it seems that in, in prophesying concerning Gad, it's basically a positive prophecy. All right, back to chapter uh, 49 of Genesis, verse 20. As for Asher, his food shall be rich. He shall yield royal dainties. Uh, okay. <laughs> After reading about Gad, I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of like the next verse, too, which we'll be looking at in a few minutes. Naphtali is, is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. <laughs> Sounds like we have the the gourmet cooks and the poets here <laughs> coming up after the warring Gadites and the snake in the grass Dan. Well, Jacob can say one thing about his sons. There's a variety here. And uh, about the peoples that would come from his sons. They're not all cookie-cutter Jacobites, if you will. Well, the name Asher, like the name Gad, has two significantly different meanings. One of the meanings is happy, and the other meaning is advance. Leah gave this name to the, her, her, the second son born through her handmaid, Zilpah. She gave him the name happy because she was happy that she could yet get another son to Jacob. This lady, we emphasize this, I think, when we studied Leah, but it just keeps coming back. This poor lady never got the message that Jacob was simply not going to love her as he loved Rachel. There just wasn't any way he was going to do it. She could give him a hundred sons and it wouldn't change him. And yet you can still see her desire and her hope that she would be accepted as an equal to her sister. And uh, it's kind of a frustration, but it's, it's carried on in the names of the children born to her and to her handmaid. But Jacob doesn't use the word happy here. He uses it in the sense of advance. And this is not a military term, however, as he is using it. He's saying that advancing out of or coming out of the tribal territory of Asher will be rich foods, even royal dainties. Now. If you go back to Joshua chapter 19, and we won't do it, but sometime if you want to go back and read through that chapter, it's, be sure you have a, an atlas in front of you because it's a very confusing, and even then you won't get it exactly right because we're not exactly sure where all the borders of the tri tribal territories were. But there in that uh, chapter, it appears that Asher was given the plain of Akko and then was supposed to also control southern Phoenicia, or what today would be called Lebanon. They were supposed to control up to the city of Sidon. Now, they did occupy the plain of Akko, which is that plain that sweeps north from Mount Carmel up towards the city of Tyre. They did occupy that, but they never drove out the Phoenicians, and they never conquered the region of Tyre 
up to the city of Sidon. They, they never pushed them out. As you read through the story of the conquest, you discover that the tribes in almost every circumstance did not drive out all the pagan peoples they were supposed to drive out. I mean, they made their first big mistake, and it was Joshua's fault as much as anyone, as after they had taken Jericho and Ai, and the next down the line, they were headed in the direction of Jerusalem, and, uh, you know, they got tricked, if you remember. Uh, the people, the Hivites from Gibeon came and said, oh, we're from a distant country, and we heard how powerful and wonderful you are, and we want to be your friends, and Joshua was a little bit suspicious. How do, how do we know that you're not just next down the line? They showed him all this dried bread and worn out clothing and, you know, moldy water, and, which, of course, they brought with them in that condition. And, and they were, made this treaty, and they found out they were the next people down the line at the city of Gibeon, which they were supposed to take. And they didn't. They had to leave them because they'd made a treaty that they wouldn't kill them. And that was the first crack in Pandora's box, if you will. And after that, there were other peoples they didn't drive out of the land. And because they didn't drive them out of the land, they had cancer in their midst. Idolatry would continue to be a threat to the people. So the Asherites did not drive the Phoenicians out of the territory they were supposed to occupy, the northern part of it anyway. Now, the plain of Fertile, <laughs> the plain of Akko was very fertile. The plain of Fertile was very Akko. <laughs> Either way, you know, <laughs> you like it. If you go there today, it is a fertile land, even today. You'll go there and you'll find that there are, um, oh, I forgot what you call them. They're not uh, kibbutzim, but they're sort of in between. Anyway, th th this was a very, is a very productive place even today. And the whole plain is, is very productive, very fertile. And apparently some of the food of that region was so high in quality of that day that it was worthy of being served to kings, kings of Israel and probably kings of Phoenicia. And most outstanding from that region was its production of olive oil. And even today, olive oil is produced in that region. And um, rather obliquely, Moses seems to make a, a reference to this in Deuteronomy chapter 33, where he is speaking of Asher in the 24th verse, and he says, and of Asher, he said, more blessed than sons is Asher. May he be favored by his brothers, and may he dip his foot in oil, specifically referring to olive oil, but as I mentioned to you, I guess it was last week, there are some who interpreted this meaning petroleum, and have actually spent millions of dollars trying to drill for petroleum in an area where there isn't any because they thought that's what this meant. It means olive oil. They didn't have any other kind of oil in the day we're talking about here. Some, in some ways, the tribe of Asher was similar to the tribe of Issachar. No major leader would come from the tribe of Asher. And by the time of David, the tribe was apparently becoming compromised in its relationship to the Phoenicians to the north. They had not driven them out. They not only hadn't driven them out, they had established a relationship with them and were being influenced by them. When the scripture says that, there, that we are not to create an unequal yoking, it refers to many circumstances when this could happen. 
because whenever you yoke a believer with a non-believer in some kind of a binding relationship, it's virtually always to the disadvantage of the believer. Because you don't know, I don't know, the person who gets involved does not know whether that unbeliever will come to know the Lord. But we do know that the unbeliever will be constantly polluting the relationship. And so it was with the Phoenicians here. They were so polluting the relationship of the Asherites with the Phoenicians that when David lists the tribes, and, and you can go to the 27th chapter of 1 Chronicles if you want some time and read through that list. But when David lists the tribes, their chief officers and their princes, the tribe of Asher is not even mentioned. Talks about Zebulon and Naphtali and Reuben and Gad and Manasseh and Judah and Ephraim. But glaringly absent is the tribe of Asher. It's not even mentioned in David's list of leaders of the land. And it seems that the reason for that could very well be that Asher had allowed the attractions of the world, the commerce, the culture, and the idolatry of the Phoenicians to choke them out of God's nations, nation. All you have to do is sometime when you feel like polluting your mind, I guess, read about the religion of the Phoenicians. It was highly sensual, very oriented towards ritual prostitution of both males and females, uh, all kinds of incense and pageantry and, and gold and silver and fine, you know, fineries. I mean, throughout the scripture, it seems that Tyre and Sidon are the symbol of the commerce of this world. Ezekiel talks quite a bit about it. And it seems that being a juxtaposed with that nation, that they were constantly being influenced, and rather than winning the Phoenicians to the God of Israel, the Phoenicians won the Asherites to Baal. To Baal. And I think this serves as a warning that unless one is on guard, it's very easy for us as believers to become a part of God's people primarily in name and not in reality. And I thought it was fitting here to include the warning given by the Lord through John in the book of Revelation. Because it really seems to apply to this situation involving Asher. In Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, we read, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And it's, it's really... I think significant here to know that, as I understand it, the word for beginning which is used here means the source, not the first created as Jehovah's Witnesses want you to think, but the source of creation here uh, says this, I know your deeds that you were neither hot nor cold. I would that you were hot, cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither cold, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. One of the commentators on this, I think it was Barclay, mentions the fact that Laodicea uh, had a water supply connected to, the, uh, to a natural spring that flowed into the city, and it was brought in by aqueduct, and that it was a warm a hot spring. 
And the water that came into the city, by the time it got to where you would use it, was just yucky, tepid. And so the illustration is very fitting here. They would really understand <laughs> in, in Laodicea what it meant, you know, have this yucky water all the time. Uh, because you say, I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you don't know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may become rich in white garments, that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God will not tolerate lukewarmness. God will not tolerate a Christianity where we name the name, but the power is not there, where the reality is not there, where we, on Sunday, look pious and smile and shake hands with brother and sister so-and-so, and on Monday we, we curse our fellow employee or we rip off our employee or whatever. You know, we cheat on our income tax or whatever it is we do that denies the faith we proclaim. God says, you're lukewarm and I won't have it. I wish you were either hot or cold. So Asher ends up being seemingly blotted out as far as David is concerned and, and the Davidic Empire and the Davidic Kingdom, there was nobody from Asher who amounted to Hill of Beans. Didn't even make the list, which is kind of sad because they were a big tribe. At one time, they were able to put 44,000 troops into the field. In fact, early in David's uh, time of beginning to, to conquer, there were Asherites in his army, 44,000 of them. But by this time, they seemed to have just disappeared because of the attraction of the world. Was, what, was it Demas? Is it Demas who Paul said he was lost to us because of the attractions of the world? It's interesting that the only Asherite of significance in Scripture that Scripture makes any point of is Anna in Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. And she never left the temple, serving day and night with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. A lady whose personal relationship to the Lord brought to her the joy of being able to see the Messiah before she died after being a widow all those many, many years. Reminds me of Polycarp, a great uh, leader of the church in the second century, whom according at least to tradition, when he was in his 80s, was uh, required to deny his faith in Christ and basically uh, told that, you know, you're an old man, we don't want to hurt you, uh, deny Christ and we'll let you go. And he said, how can I deny the one who has done me 
nothing but good. I'm paraphrasing very broadly here. Uh, lo, these 80 some odd years, for 84 years, something very similar to this. And he died a martyr's death because he would not deny Christ. And so Anna was blessed. An Asherite who was truly blessed, who was truly a follower of God. And then finally today, I'd like for us to look at verse 21. I read it uh, a few moments ago, referring to Naphtali. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. This is Jacob's second son by Rachel's maid Bilhah. And he was named Naphtali by Rachel. She felt that she was wrestling with her sister. She knew that Leah was trying to gain equality with her by all these sons that were being born. And so she felt like she was in a wrestling match trying to hold on to Jacob's love in the face of the fact that she was barren and her sister was productive, if you will. And so she felt like she was wrestling with her sister, so she names her son Wrestling. Notice the contrast. Leah names her sons Fortune and Happy. Rachel names her son Wrestling. It's interesting, though, unlike most of the previous prophecies we've been studying here, he does not seem to pick up on the name when he makes this prophecy. Jacob does not seem to pick up on the meaning of the name. Instead, he portrays Naphtali as a as a graceful, swift, wild deer. Possibly this is a reference to the fact that it seems that the warriors of Naphtali were noted for their fleet-footedness. And that may be the result partly of the fact that, that Naphtali was located up in Upper Galilee where it was pretty rugged terrain, and maybe climbing all those mountains made them good runners. But whatever the case is, their fleet-footedness seems to have played a role in a major victory which occurred in the days of the Judges. In Judges chapter 4, we read, beginning at verse 6, Now she, this is Deborah, now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinom, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord God of Israel has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulon. And I will draw out to you Sisera, commander of Jabin's armies, army, and with his chariot and his many troops to the river Kishon. And I will give him into your hand. Using the word river for Kishon is using the word in a very <clears throat> broad sense of the term. The Kishon is just a little creek. Verse 16 but Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. It seems that the soldiers of Naphtali, fleet-footed as they were, were able to even defeat the chariots. Of course, Scripture tells us the chariots became bogged down in the mud of the flooded Kishon, and uh, that the chariots kind of were rendered relatively useless. But the men of Naphtali, along with the men of Zebulon, were able to uh, destroy, under Barak's leadership, the armies of Sisera. In verse 21, it says he gives beautiful words. Now, if you happen to have the NIV in front of you, they translate a different word here. It's as if they do not find the word emmer, but emmer uh, here in this place. And uh, that would be uh, the, a baby animal, basically. 
And so they translate bears, beautiful fawns, or lambs in this particular circumstance. And, and this is logical. If, as you read the verse, it would, it would seem to flow with that kind of a translation. Naphtali is a doe let loose, and he gives beautiful fawns. <laughs> and that seems to make a very poetic little scene. But the majority of the translations do not translate it as fawns, but translate it as words in this particular circumstance. And so, is it that Naphtali was somehow blessed with an abnormal number of poets? <laughs> well, we don't know. But uh, two possible understandings here. One would be that in the victory we just read about, it was the fleet-footed soldiers of Naphtali who in winning the great victory inspired Deborah to the great song of victory which she created and which is written in the fifth chapter of Judges. So in a way, they kind of inspired the poetry, if you will. But more likely, more likely, is the understanding that is based on the passage in Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. Well, let's begin at verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali, which this, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them a, a light dawned. And then verse 17 specifically, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Much of Jesus' ministry took place in the land of the tribe of Naphtali, specifically in the areas around Nazareth and then over on the Sea of Galilee at Capernaum. And Jesus began there first to preach the beautiful words of repentance. Next Sunday we'll look at Joseph. Again, a, a long passage, compared to the others anyway. Only Judah has a passage as about the same length as, as Joseph. And uh, it's again a very positive prophecy.